So, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We'll see how far we can get this morning. In Acts chapter 6, so far we've seen in the early church uh, this word that keeps occurring in the scriptures. It says multiply. And then the word of the Lord multiplied. Number one, what happened is that those that had been impacted by the Lord, they were sharing that with the people that had not been impacted by the Lord, that didn't know Him. And so the testimony of Jesus Christ, what He had done, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, they continued to be proclaimed because the disciples and everyone that heard what He taught while He was on this earth, they watched Him be put to death, they watched Him be buried, and then they heard the good news that He was not in the tomb. Now, lots of people tried to discredit whether or not he actually rose from the dead, but he was visited, he had visited over 500 people after his resurrection. And so there were many witnesses, not just to the, to the testimony and hearing that he had resurrected, but had actually witnessed, he had revealed himself to them. And so they were spreading the word. They were like, this, is, this guy that, compl- uh, that uh, claimed to be God, he rose from the dead and he's continuing to set people free from whatever holds them bondage, whether it be sickness or whether it be a demon possession. He was still working. He's not dead. He's continuing. And so because this news is spreading, the church is growing. And the church is growing, but what I want to point out is that even though the church is growing, it's not because everything was simpler back then or because there was no opposition, because what we've looked at the past few weeks is that every week, We've seen another testimony of how those outside the church, those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, are opposing His work. They're they're trying to stop the word from getting out that Jesus is Lord. And so, as they're continuing to multiply, and they're continuing to be opposed, we've seen three different types of opposition. Number one, from the outside, there's been scoffers. There have been those that are not followers of Jesus, and they're trying to stop anybody from talking about it. And they've even put the apostles in jail and wanted to kill them for proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Because remember, we talked about last week the fact that if Jesus was the payment for our sins, then Judaism and all the sacrifices that they made were no longer necessary. It put them out of a job, basically. But Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law completely. He came to fulfill it so that you and I could be righteous. This is good news to those that realize that they're not righteous on their own, but to those that feel like they're righteous because of all the things that they do in the temple, this is bad news because all of a sudden they're they're put out of a job of trying to earn their own righteousness. But for those who are being saved, this is a beautiful truth because we realize we don't have any righteousness. I was a sinner from birth. You know, that little girl that we have, she is born and she is a sinner. She needs Jesus for her salvation. Anyone that that walks on this earth, they need Jesus for salvation. If they're trusting in any other thing, and you tell them that Jesus is the only way to be saved, they may not be very happy about it. Matter of fact, some of them will get angry and tell you, well, God is, you know, God, you're worshiping God your way, but you can worship Him all these other ways. But Jesus Christ is the only name given among men Uh, by which we must be saved. And so when we tell that message to people, they don't like it necessarily. 
unless they already understand that they, they need salvation. And at that point, you get to tell them, hey, you can be saved, just like I was, because I was a sinner. And I'm still struggling with sin, but I'm saved. God's taking care of my payment for, for His wrath. I no longer deserve death and judgment, but now my sins have been judged on the cross, and I trust in Jesus for my salvation. So we saw opposition from the outside, we saw from the inside, with Ananias and Sapphira just uh, two or three weeks ago, Ananias and Sapphira were put to death because they were inside the church claiming to be a Christian, but they were also lying to the Lord. They weren't lying about what they offered to people. They weren't lying to the pastor. They weren't lying to the people that go to the church. They were lying to the Lord saying, Lord, I've given you all of what I got from my sale of my possessions. Um, <clears throat> and they really hadn't. They had held some back. They lied. And so the Lord made an example of them by judging them, judging their sin. And in Hebrews, it actually says that there is a sin that leads to death. And I think sometimes God judges people so that, you know, that, that their sin can be dealt with. But notice the result of that. When he judges them, fear came upon all those who believed. They feared the Lord. They knew that the Lord had given them grace, that he loved them, that he wanted to encourage them to continue to walk with them. But they, he also wanted them to know, hey, I am a graceful God, but I'm still holy. I still have standards. And you're supposed to walk by them, not because you have to anymore, but because you should, because I love you. You want to please me because I love you and you love me. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think that we get one side view of who God is and we forget about the other side. God is gracious, but he's also holy. God is loving. But he also is grieved when we sin. And so we need to get the full picture of who God is. That's why we study him throughout the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we get a full picture of who he is. It's a painting that's not just a broad brush sketch. But if you zoom in on each little portion of the painting, you get little pictures of who he is. And, and people always ask, well, is he, is he a God who judges or is he a God who shows mercy? And the answer is yes. He has, you know, we deserve death if we sin against him. But the reality is, is that he's also given that payment for our sin. And then, okay, so <clears throat> we see opposition from the outside. We see it from the inside. And then we are going to this week see opposition from the inside. And a lot of people wouldn't look at it like opposition. But do you realize that most churches, a lot of churches, spend most of their resources and their efforts inside the walls of the church because there's disputes that go on. There's arguments. There's disunity among the brethren. And so what, the way that we deal with disputes and, and uh, disagreements inside the church will greatly affect not only uh, our witness outside the church, but it'll also affect the way, you know, where our resources go. Um, many times what happens, well, I won't go there yet, but before I make my point, I'll just uh, go to the scripture and we'll start there. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now the theme I said through the whole book of Acts so far is the multiplication of the church. But we also see that even though it's multiplying, it doesn't mean that it's multiplying easily. See, they're, they're multiplying while all this opposition is going on. And so, 
this thing is happening inside the church, and there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, who are the Hellenists? Is this some group that follows a lady named Helen? No, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. And the Hellenists are just a faction of the body of Christ, because the church is no longer just one group of people, one type of people. It's actually a very diverse group now, because... The word is spreading like wildfire, and it's getting outside of Israel. But it's also getting to the areas where people speak different languages. Now, the Hellenists were just a faction of the church that we hear about today. There were other groups as well that had already joined the church. And so, this group rose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So apparently there was this ministry going on in their church that would dis distribute, distribute food or practical help to the widows. Now, is this something that the church is called to do, to distribute stuff to widows? Well, James chapter 1 verse 27 actually says that true and undefiled religion before the Father is this, that we visit or meet the needs of widows and orphans in their time of need. So this is a complaint about something that needs to be taking place. It's a good complaint. Oftentimes we hear the word complaint or think, oh, they're complaining again. Who likes a complainer, right? Now there are times where we need to shut our pie hole and not complain. But in this case, it was a good complaint. It was something that was supposed to be going on that was not taking place. So these people, this group, rises up and they approach the leaders of the church, the apostles, and they say, hey, we've got a complaint. This uh, ministering to the widows is not happening. And it's not that it's not happening at all, it's not happening for the Hellenist widows. These Greek-speaking Jews, these Greek-speaking uh, Jews were not, have, their widows were not being provided for. What's the issue here? Well, apparently one group was being provided for, the other one wasn't. Imagine that. Somebody's being shown favoritism already in this early holy church. I've heard lots of people say before, man, if we could just get back to the way that the, that the church was in the book of Acts, man, it was so much simpler back then. They had just as many issues as churches have today, but the reality is, is that the way that they dealt with them oftentimes was way different than we hear of things being dealt with in the church now. What do we do now? We start a committee, and then that committee has a committee that it answers to. And we spend so much time trying to deal with the issue that we never really deal with the issue, but we start up all kinds of other issues because we get more people involved. Well, what do the apostles do? They see the problem, they hear about it, they know that it's a problem that needs dealt with, it's not something that doesn't matter, it's something that really matters. And so, verse 2 says, The twelve summoned, they called for the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they see the problem and they respond to it. This is what happens when people... Leadership in the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds to issues rather than reacting to them. I read this passage this week and thought, how quickly 
oftentimes when we hear complainers, even in the church, my first response, I don't know, would have been, well, let's do something about this. I think my reaction, if I wasn't careful, would be to go, stop complaining. What are you complaining about? People are always complaining. But these guys, they don't do that. Their first response is to go, let's deal with the issue. And so as they say, let's deal with the issue, they tell these people that have complained, okay, you've got a complaint, you've seen an issue, you obviously have a heart for this ministry, I want you guys to go out and we're going to give you some requirements. We want you to seek men who are um, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So go find some guys that are, have a heart for this ministry, seek them out, uh, they got to be Christians, they got to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they've also um, got to be of good reputation. Oftentimes we think, we don't, we don't look at people's reputations before we put them in places of leadership. It's important that they have a good reputation. If they don't have one now, they're not going to have it after you give them more to do. And so they must have a good reputation. Pick these guys out and we will appoint over them, or over this business, we'll give them this, this ministry, we'll hand it off to them. Notice what they say there. Before they say that, they say, uh, it's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Now, are these, these people that they're talking to, these leaders, are they just saying, hey, uh, we don't really feel called to serve, so why don't you find somebody else to do it? No. What I want to point out is that they're saying, look, we know what our ministry is. As pastors, as leaders in the church, our ministry is this. To spend time with the Lord, the Word of God, and, and, uh, and to pray. Verse 4 says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. How often have you seen it in a church? And maybe you haven't, and maybe I'm giving you something new that you really don't need to know. But in, in many churches, what happens is rather than giving this ministry away to someone else that has the time to do it, the pastor is expected to do everything. We think of ministry and we think of the pastor or we think of uh, the worship leaders or we think of the deacons. Now, today we're going to see the deacons fulfilling this ministry. That's what the word means, table waiter, diaconeo. It means table waiter, literally. But we oftentimes see in churches pastors that are completely stressed out and they don't have time to study the word because they're spending all of their time meeting practical needs. Now, sometimes that's all you got, and so that's what you do. But what happens is, if there's no one there to fulfill the practical stuff, then the people don't feel blessed. The sheep don't feel loved. And so there is a need for people to do the practical things, whether it's washing windows, or running the PowerPoint, cleaning the bathroom, sweeping the floor. We don't think about those things as ministry, perhaps, right? But if they don't happen then the Bible study is completely distracted because somebody went back to use the restroom and the thing's nasty. If the bathroom's nasty, unfortunately, many times, if someone goes back there, they're visiting for the first time, they go use the restroom, and then they come out, they're like, what in the world? They don't hear any of the Bible study. They will never come back. Unfortunately, that will take people and they will push them away from Jesus because... They're like, hey, they don't even care about the people that are already there. And I came and the thing was nasty. So these are needs that have to be fulfilled. It's not the Bible study. It's not prayer. It's not worship. 
But it's just as important because if it doesn't happen, it draws attention away from Jesus. So, they say there in verse 4, We will give ourselves continually to, the prayer, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They recognized that they couldn't do everything, so they gave opportunity for other people to serve. I found myself doing that. There's a gentleman that makes our coffee here on Sunday mornings, and for a few weeks here, I've completely just done it on my own because I was already here. Now, no doubt, I can make the coffee, and I can do everything, but it robs other people of opportunities to do their part inside the church. And so, uh, I'm not really helping anybody. As a matter of fact, I'm actually kind of robbing a blessing from someone. And so if I try to do everything, not only will I not be able to, because I'm only one person, but also other people won't be able to be blessed by getting to serve. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, Paul spends a little bit of time kind of revealing uh, what happens in the body of Christ and how God's plan is to direct it and to uh, build it up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, He himself, meaning God, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some pastors, teachers. Here's the reason. He gave these gifts to people within the church, and here's the reason. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that word there means the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 16, excuse me, 15 says, but... Uh, speaking the truth in love, may, we may all grow up into him who is the head, Christ. So this passage is teaching that the, the church is run by Jesus Christ himself. And the way that he runs it is he supplies the gifts, the, the strengths that we have as individuals to each one of us so that we can equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now we read this verse 12 that says the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry and we go, wait a minute, in verse 11 it lists all the, the ways that ministry happens. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, those are the ministers. But it says that their gifts has been given to them so that they can equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's not the ministry. That is someone's ministry, but each one of us has a ministry that we're called to and when we study the Word, when we come to church, when we pray as a group, that's ways that we're all built up, strengthened, and equipped to go outside the doors and to share what God has done through Jesus, to share the good news. So we all come here, we get equipped, you get equipped on your morning reading or whenever it is you have it, but then God supplies gifts to each one of you so that we can all be partakers in ministry, building up the body. But the way that he does that is he gives us all something that we may or may not consider ministry. One of my ministries is to go to U.S. Tool every day and to work there. Perhaps I might share the good news with somebody. Perhaps I might build up somebody else that's a Christian there by talking to them. Perhaps they might build me up by sharing something that the Lord's shown them. But sometimes my ministry is to go to work at U.S. Tool and to do what I do in the engineering department to provide 
for my family. That's ministry. We don't look at it that way, but that's ministry as well. Because if I don't provide for my family, then they can't worship Jesus anyway because they've got other stuff going on. And so that's why uh, God gives gifts to the church. And so back to Acts chapter 6, the saying pleased the whole multitude, verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, I'm going to butcher these words, Nicanor, Timon, I think a Timon and Pumbaa, <laughs> that's just me, I'm a Lion King guy, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So they, they hear what they taught, they, they know the qualifications for somebody to do these, this ministry of table waiting, and what do they do? They pick out seven men. Notice the ones they pick out. Notice their names. Those are not Hebrew names, those are Greek names. So they have a problem with the Hellenist women, the Greek Jews, that are not getting their needs supplied. So they pick somebody that has a heart for the Hellenist believers. They pick Hellenists. They pick somebody from their own people to go and serve them. They're not going to show partiality because they're from them. And not only that, but it pleased the whole multitude that rose to the complaint because they're going, hey, these people are from us. They're going to do a good job. We do that, right? Even when we go to vote for politicians, we want somebody that, that knows our deal. And so to have somebody that's a servant that's going to supply the needs of these Hellenist widows, you want Hellenists. Now, unfortunately, we have to pick people that way. But these are the people that God rose up. They had a heart for the people, and they wanted to serve, and they were Christians, and they had a good reputation. And so that's who God rose up to serve. Notice also, verse 6 says, Whom they set before the apostles. They brought these men before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and they commissioned them. Notice that the authority in the church doesn't change because there's new leaders, but instead the leaders of the church commission these men. They, in front of everybody, they say, okay, these guys are called to do this. They prayed for them. They committed them to the Lord. They set them apart. And they said, you're now responsible. And all these people know, and God knows, and so go do your thing. They laid hands on them and they prayed for them. That's what happens. And so basically the authority to serve in this capacity is passed on from the leaders of the church. But notice the result, which is stated in John chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, then, as this has been taken care of, the problem's been dealt with, verse 7 says, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. When things are handled properly in the church of God, what will happen is as a result of that, the word of God will spread. And the number of the disciples will multiply. But also notice at the end of the verse there, I had never noticed this before and I was reading the passage last night and I've skipped over it many times. But every little sentence in the word of God is important and God sometimes gives us a little fresh breath. He's like, I want you to go a little deeper this time. It says there at the end, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now there were priests, and these are Jewish priests, in the time of Jesus that heard the things that Jesus taught, and they believed it, but they weren't going to confess it outwardly. They weren't going to profess, man, Jesus is Lord. 
Why weren't they going to do it? Well, let's turn to John chapter 12. Because in John chapter 12, verse 42, it says something very peculiar that I've kind of not tied in with Acts before. In John chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus had been speaking with um, this group, and he had predicted his death on the cross, and then he shared with them some scriptures from the Old Testament about himself. And verse 42 in John chapter 12 says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Many of the rulers, the Jewish rulers, believed in Jesus as being the Lord, being the Messiah. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. They didn't profess him with their mouths. They didn't profess him in public. It says there, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose their position in the temple. And so they didn't confess Jesus as Lord. It says there, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They had not been convinced yet that it was worth losing their reputation as Jewish leaders. So since they weren't quite con convinced, they weren't willing to lose their prominence. They're like, hey, I would give it all up if I, if I understood it, but I really still care a little bit too much about what people think of me. So I'm not there yet. So I love that because it says here in verse 7, after they dealt with this issue, after they dealt with this disagreement inside of the church, this disunity, what happened is that they had a good testimony, so the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, which was probably the most religious area in all of Israel, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. They confessed him with their mouths. I read that, and I called my pastor last night. I was like, what does this mean? It says a great, a, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. He said, <laughs> and you don't, you, you call your pastor, you ask him this deep question, you think, and he goes, well, apparently the priest got saved. That was his answer. I was like, oh, well, that's a lot simpler. I was trying to make it. The priest got saved. Not only did they believe in him, but they professed with their mouth. That's salvation. You can't just say, hey, I'm, I'm just a closet believer, we have to be willing to confess, Lord, you are Lord. That's why I always love on that song we sang this morning, I'll stand with heart, arms high and heart abandoned. But then it says, we confess as we're singing, there's no one higher, there's no one greater, there's no one like our God. There's none more able, not Christ our Savior, great and glorious. We're professing not only that he's our Savior, but he is it. He is all in all. He's everything that we need. And when we profess that, we're doing what he's called us to do. And so it, it builds us up. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. It strengthens us to know how weak we are. Because in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. So when we recognize we're not it, and that he is it, and then we profess that, we proclaim that to people, there's strength in that because they see the Lord and they go, Wow. When you tell somebody that you're nothing and he's everything, that takes you off the throne. That takes you out of leadership. That shows to people that you trust in him with more than just like, you know, you know, I'm a Christian, you know. But it's just like, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. And so, before I go any further, I want to turn to 1 Timothy. Because we've talked about this morning these deacons. This is the first time that deacons are mentioned. And deacons in the church are uh, oftentimes seen in the wrong light. 
Many deacons, even in the position, think that it means that they're in charge of the church. But in this context, we see that the first deacons were set up because there was a practical need that needed met. And they were supposed to submit to the authority of the pastor as he submits to the Lord. And so they're not supposed to run the church. They're supposed to serve tables. They're supposed to be servants. That's what they've been called to do. But in 1 Timothy, we get the qualifications that were listed in Acts, but a little bit more specific. I should have been turning while I was... Uh, yapping. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 says deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, Faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. That's a good one, right? Ruling their children and their own house as well. And then there's this verse at the end, verse 13. It says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, how do we want to get boldness? Oftentimes the way that we think that we get boldness is by just talking more. But it says here that someone who serves well as a deacon, as a table waiter, doing things in the background that no one will see, will obtain for themselves a good standing. They'll be shown to be faithful. And they'll be given great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now it, it intrigued me as I read this last night because as I read this I thought, who wrote 1 Timothy? Paul. Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Who's he talking about when he, reads, when he writes this verse? Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Who had he seen that had great boldness? A man by the name of Stephen. Stephen was a bold man. But do you know who was there when he was giving his testimony of who the Lord was and how he had fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures? Saul of Tarsus, which we know as the Apostle Paul. Do you know who saw his boldness and how well that he died? Because when Stephen got done giving his testimony, he was murdered. He was stoned to death for what they said was blasphemy. But do you know how he became so bold? He served. It says here that, and it even names him first, the saying pleased the whole multitude, verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now we think of men that are full of faith and we think of guys like Billy Graham. We think of the most prominent speakers that go out and share the gospel and thousands are saved. But the Bible teaches, and no doubt, Billy Graham's a man of faith. I've read his book, I've seen the fruit of his ministry. I've seen his son, Franklin Graham, continue on in his legacy. But it says here that Stephen was a man full of faith and his calling in life was to serve in the church of God. To clean toilets. Now they didn't have toilets. Maybe he was going to dust off the, the commode. I don't know what they used. But his calling in life was to be a servant. But as he was a servant, he gained a good standing among the church and he gave a bold testimony. And we'll see in the coming weeks that as he testified... Everyone was cut to the quick when he shared his faith. And then they killed him. 
But there was one man there, Saul of Tarsus, that we know of, that saw that testimony, and later when he wrote 1 Timothy 3, no doubt to me in my mind at all, that when he wrote 1 Timothy 3 and he gave the qualifications of a deacon, he thought of Stephen. Because Stephen was a man who showed faithfulness. He wasn't a Bible teacher that we know of. He was just a servant. And as he was a servant, he was bold in his faith. It helped him in his being able to proclaim the gospel. So as I end here, what I want to point out is that oftentimes in church, churches become these things. They become focused on Bible study, but they focus on it without having any application that leads to heart change in their own lives. They emphasize on exhortation or strong, you know, strong like let it rip kind of preaching. But they have no emphasis on how the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to fulfill what God's Word says. They emphasize the gifts of the Spirit, but they emphasize it with no biblical basis. A gift of the Spirit would be service. And, and we see it in Stephen, and we will see it in these coming weeks. These men that serve the widows. No one would see them do what they did, but if they didn't do it, a practical need wouldn't be met. And they emphasize the power of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but they neglect evangelism, which is outside of the church. Church should be these things, and we're seeing it already in the book of Acts here. Number one, upreach. Upreach. Our relationship to our, our God, our Father. Number two, inreach. We share the gifts that God has given us to build up the body of Christ when we're here and when we're not here, praying for one another. Upreach, inreach, and a direct result of that will be what we saw today in today's passage, outreach. As we reach up to the Lord, and as we inreach to one another, the result of that is that we will reach out and we'll go toward the world with the good news. You won't have to ask the Lord for boldness. It will be a natural result. So as we think about that this morning, obviously I've got the communion elements out. We're going to take communion.